Talk RL. Talk RL podcast is all reinforcement learning all the time, featuring brilliant guests, both research and applied. Join the conversation on Twitter at Talk RL Podcast. I'm your host, Robin Chohan. Jordan Terry is a PhD candidate at the University of Maryland, the maintainer of Jim and the maintainer and creator of Petting Zoo and the founder of Swarm Labs. Thanks so much for joining us, Jordan. Hey, good to be here. So how do you like to describe uh, your focus area? I have been working in deep reinforcement learning, mostly multi-agent reinforcement learning, but I have some single agent reinforcement learning work that I've done. I've essentially been pursuing a panful of hopefully high impact, very, very long term projects that are hopefully going to become public in the next three to six months. Uh, most of uh, all of them. Okay, that sounds exciting. So let's start. Let's start with Jim. I don't think anyone could ever overstate the importance of, of Jim in the RL ecosystem. And I understand that you are now maintaining that that project, which has got to be a huge job. Yeah, it, it, it is a memorable experience, I, I'll say. Awesome. So can can you um, help us with some history of of the Jim project? Yeah, so what Jim was intended to be and what it is are kind of different things. What's happened is that Jim is now basically HTTP for RL. It is the standard interface between between pretty much all environment and learning code. It has been installed 35 million times. It's the most installed RL library in the world by a very large amount. So, so Jim essentially ended up becoming HTTP for RL and something that was a, that was a price to everyone from what I'm told. There's between a hundred and a few thousand different third party environments. I tried to estimate it and like create a list of them at this point, but they're, but it's because of forks. I can't even figure out a like, way to create a reasonable duplicate list. If you're listening to this and can think of a way, please email me. And, and yeah, so it's, it's been sold 35 million times. It's used so much that I can't quantify how much it's used anymore, and essentially all code is fundamentally built around this. For a variety of reasons, Jim uh, ended up being progressively less maintained over time. I ended up essentially taking over the maintenance from OpenAI uh, about five months ago now, and so now I'm in the unique position of, okay, cool, you are now in charge of the most used and consequential piece of reinforcement learning software in the world that hasn't been extensively maintained ever. And one interesting consequence to Jim is that because Jim wasn't expected to be HDP for RL, some of the design choices and stuff that were made for it were not as deliberate as you might like. Just to be clear, for what Jim was intended to be, there's nothing wrong with this approach, right? Like Jim was this little side project almost of like, hey, we did a cool thing for everyone to have you know, a shared set of benchmarks people can go and play with if they're new to the field. Uh, and for this, Jim was perfectly fine and reasonable design. There's nothing wrong with it. But when you end up creating HTTP for RL by accident, you know, this wasn't designed for that. Literally wasn't designed for that. And so now you have to figure out what are you going to do next? And this essentially has been a large part of my life ever since. You've mentioned some specific changes that you're planning um, and, and that are documented in the repo. So maybe let's Let's uh, let's start with those. I I, I pulled up uh, the gym repo and and I can see here on April twenty seventh, Greg Brockman first commit twenty sixteen. Hello world, I love that. Yeah, RL has changed a lot since then. So yeah, it makes total sense that that we need to um, bring Jim up to date. So I think the uh, community's gonna owe you a. a debt of gratitude in advance for this. I, I can't imagine how much work it is. So let's talk about some of the um, some of the things that you have planned. 
well, seeding the random number generator, uh, pretty technical change that may not have too much direct impact on us, but how, what's the benefit there? The first and least interesting change to the API is uh, is the changing how seeding works. So previously in Jim, well, originally in Jim, Jim didn't really have a, a standardized seed method, and then they added the dot, the specific dot seed method. And the way that this method works, for those of you who don't know, is that you you pass a number to the environment via the seed method, and it just kind of goes and does its thing. And so then whenever you reset, given that seed, it will just reset to that seed. And so you can use this for determinism and reproducibility and uh, results between papers if you if everyone does things correctly, which happens less often than you would hope. So the problem with the seed method, well, there's a couple things. Number one, the internal stuff with the way that, that Jim did seeding was using like features in NumPy that were the old version and not recommended anymore. And so there just had to be a list of internal upgrades there. But then there's this issue of, okay, well, what should the API be? So there are three options for how to specify seeding for an environment. One option is to do what's done, um, just have a separate method that handles this. One option is to make an argument to to environment initialization. And then the other argument is to make it an argument to reset. Or sorry, the other option is to make an argument to reset. The problem with the way that it was currently done is, one, the contract isn't clear. For instance, a lot of the time this will be called as part of reset or a call reset and depending on different third-party environments and just, okay, well, there's a method seed. Okay, well, just from the method name, do you know if this is supposed to seed it for one environment or for many environments or so on? You generally want a lot of standardization and clarity regarding, you know, your basic tool for reproducibility. And so that's one part of the problem. Then the other part of the problem is that there's nothing in the API that prevents it from being called at any time. And so at a certain point, it it ends up becoming more clear to make it a part of seed of, of reset or part of init. The reason that we made it a part of init, not reset, is because the initialization of some environments is really, really, really expensive. Like like robotic simulators, they you know they take minutes to to start up in some, in a lot of cases, even a workstation hardware. And okay, well that means that needing to if you're if you're going through seeds, that means that putting this as an argument to init is probably a bad idea. What happened with all of this is that, okay, well, if the current thing has an unclear contract that's, that's not clearly used and it's arguably a method, put in, you can't really put it in init, then this is why I think that putting reset makes more sense ideologically. And some people disagree with this, and this is okay, I, you know, but I, I think that, the, that having a clear contract with what the method does for visibility is very important. And a lot of people think that, okay, well, it's like this, and I guess it kind of works, we shouldn't break it. And I guess my driving philosophy with API and Jim and stuff is that, you know, Jim's going to be used a lot more in the next five years than it has been in the past five, right? Just just having everything be frozen in time, having, having nothing be changed and not bring it up to the standards of what you would hope for with what has become HTTP for RL, you know, that this isn't really an outcome that you want to see happen. The, um, while, you know, having to make breaking changes sucks, you know, we can keep the minimal. And so, you know, okay, if you have... If you have seeding logic and environment or learning, you know, moving the passing the seed reset versus passing it to the seed method, this is a trivial change, right? This is a small change. And, and until the 1.0 release, which is, you know, six months away, something like that, probably, we're going to end up having the seed method, um, the old one still supported. And so if you're, you know, using legacy environments, legacy code, then it'd still work. And so this isn't a, a big breaking change. This is essentially, it's less confusing and, you know, we need to get it to 1.0 release. The big breaking change, to go slightly out of order, is, is with truncation versus termination. This is a really important and really weird issue. Yeah, can you help us, uh, help the audience uh, understand the importance yeah. of truncation versus termination? And I think 
There was a paper on this topic uh, by Pardo, Time Limits and Reinforcement Learning, where which is where I first learned about this, the the subtleties of the difference between those those two. And uh, yeah, if you could you know, just maybe uh, walk us through that, that'd be awesome. Yeah. So I'm not going to go into math in the vocal format, but essentially what it comes down to is this: um, if you have a list of state action pairs from an environment. Um, you will then have a final state action pair. If you then want to go and compute um, things like value from it for or uh, like for reaction value or advantage or stuff like this, co then computing this the correct way depends on whether or not the, the uh, you reach a state of the environment that is truly terminal, or if you're just cut off from stepping the environment further due to time limits, i.e., you are truncated. So if you're trying to do DQN, um, reproducing you know the paper and stuff like this then um, then this differentiation to correctly reproduce the paper matters. Additionally, what happens is that th this is actually a thing for works beyond uh, just DQ and stuff uh, in policy gradient methods. Um, when you're using uh, GAEs, uh, GAE logic, this ends up coming up there as well. And okay, well, if this is this like subtle integral thing and how the stuff is computed, then Clearly specifying it is probably important. Problem is that Jim only has done as a state, and this doesn't differentiate what the deal is. And this is not what you would want. People don't really, you know, use it as intended. Now, what Jim does have is for some environments in Jim, the truncation is imposed um, via a time limit wrapper. In those environments, it adds a infos property that indicates if the environment is truncated. However, it is my understanding this is not done for all environments where, where this uh, should be applied. And this is also not a widely known feature that is not widely used in learning code and not done in any third-party environments to my knowledge. And so Jim essentially just merges these two things that from a code perspective are together different. And you talk to lots of people who are somewhat famous in RL now about Jim and like, oh yeah, man, when I was first learning Jim, uh, I was so confused why they were the same. I, it was like I was going crazy. And then I kind of figured out and like, oh, okay. And this isn't good. And so, so this is definitely the, like, like the clearest case of where, where breaking API change is required. So there's then this issue of what do you want to do, right? Yeah, just so for the audience, I think um, one, one thing that happens if you don't handle this correctly is as what some people refer to as the photo finish ending, whereas... You, you treat it if you train an agent to do a sprint and uh, and you you stop the simulation at some point and the agent actually thinks that's the end of an episode and then it may just fall on its face at the last moment uh, t because it doesn't affect uh, uh, its, its, its speed at the last moment. But what you really want is to train a policy that can keep going. And the difference between truncation and uh, and and really ending the episode is whether is what happens after that that point. Is that right? Yeah. That's correct. Yeah, and but but just to go into the options that you kind of have to choose from, um, one option is to um, make done. It, if you want to make this explicit, not info's argument the way it is now, which I think we kind of have to. Um, what what you end up having to do is either make it done as th a three state variable, which you could do with a custom class in Python. That would be unpythonic and kind of messy. Another thing that you could do is return a half step return a fifth value in addition to um, observation reward done info. You can also have return truncated. And if you have backwards compatibility for learning code for that, simply just add an extra um, comma underscore like you normally do for infos. 
And it's a trivial uh, change update learning code to, to handle this. Although you probably should ha fix logic too, of course, but it'll still run. And then the other option is instead of returning a Boolean to do what DMMV does and return a discount factor. Which is more ex a lot more expressive, right? The discount factor. Like, is there is, are we are we missing something by not having discount factor in Gem? I actually that was never nothing clear to, to my knowledge. Okay, I'm I'm not going to say that that there is some that that I mean it's, it's surely possible that like there is some aspect that that is handled by discount factor that you can't that you cannot describe otherwise. And if there is, please email me. But at least to the knowledge of myself or anyone who I've talked to, there is no way to do this it, there's there's no need to do this essentially where this comes down to is should the environment handle discount factor or should learning code handle it in the show notes one question was what is the difference between uh jim and dmnv and at least from my perspective jim is like this like minimal simple very very pythonic like super friendly to get into interface um, and like, like, like if you know anything about RL, you can just look at a little code set, but oh, that's how it works. Awesome. I understand now. And that is incredible. DM and while it has features that are more kind of has a style, that's a little bit more resemblant of the like formal MDP model it doesn't have the like infinitely easy, Pythonic accessible thing. And so if you're trying to use this for education or if you're trying to just, you know, like use the easiest thing or whatever, like, like I think that that keeping things as simple as possible is really valuable and I th and that that sort of ethos of Jim I think is what I really liked about it and I think that it's why it became HTTP for RL because for all its limitations the API design is very understandable and simple and so th so this is my pre this is kind of why my preference is to just have a boolean variable instead of having people think through discounting and stuff so just for the audience I mean generally we talk we I think the most common way to talk about discount uh, discounting is this this gamma that we that the agent chooses in terms and it sets their their horizon as to how far in the future they care about roughly speaking is that is that how you would describe it yeah essentially the i really like um david silver's explanation of what a discount factor is and it's that you know you get a reward from when you when you take this action and then you know and you're trying to figure out how useful it is to take this action now or later in your cumulative sum of rewards um, through an environment, right? And ideally, you'd want to take reward uh, sooner rather than later because you you don't have a perfect model environment and where things can happen and all these things. It, it is, this kind of is there for a way of essentially incentivizing taking actions earlier, getting rewards earlier, which is much more in line with what you would hope to have. It's like an interest charge on on uh, on rewards. Yep. But it, typically, we talk about it the simplest way. We talk about it as a global a number across the 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 entire uh, uh, episode or environment. But then in DMNV, um, we actually have a discount at every single step, which I guess is what we're discussing here about the the value of having that uh, ability to change the discount at every single step. Is that right? But I mean, you can change it on your own in learning code, right? It, it essentially it comes down to is discounted in an environment property or is it a, a learning code property? And then there's there's a philosophical answer to this, and there's a, te a, a technical one, there's non-breaking change one. And I guess I, I, I guess my my most pragmatic answer to this is that is looking at the third-party learning code and looking at third-party environments. I think that it would be a better outcome for the community for this to be maintained in um, learning code because of how it's structured and because environments a lot of the time people just take some random environment and not really go into details like I've been working on 
a paper that'll hopefully maybe submitted to a nature sub-journal at the end of this month or early next month. And I've had to go and make, you know, well, the team, more accurately, has had to go and make this very, very, very large number of fixes to environments. And this isn't really done, but the people doing these things, at least by a lot of teams, this is. Whereas in Learning Code, people do do this stuff because they kind of have to. Okay, do, we, do you want to move on to the simulators? So one thing that's going on in Jim that I've gotten questions about is one of the, one of the biggest things with Jim when I first took over is like r slash reinforcement learning, whatever, the post, the top column was get rid of Mujico. And this has turned into a, to a very, very deep story that's probably worth telling briefly. And so the story of Mujico is that – so the, so the problem with the Mujico environments, there's three problems. So number one – well, there were three. Number one, the Mujico environments um, are very um, – they, they depend on the Mujico simulator. You have, to, you, you have to either lie to get a student license and stuff like this, or you either have to pay a large amount of money to like tens of thousands of dollars to get a professional license. And this makes reproducibility hard because it's closed source software. You can't integrate it with CI. It just becomes albatross on the field's neck. And, well, okay, we should probably do something about that. But then things get worse because the Python bindings for DeepMind – sorry, for the Python bindings for Mujico – um, were Mujico Pi by OpenAI originally. DeepMind also created their own Python binding separately before acquiring Mujico. Um, but the Python bindings for Mujico by OpenAI weren't maintained. And then the um, and then the environments themselves weren't maintained or very well documented. And so there are lots of things in these environments where no one had any idea what they were doing in the action space. And, and, and like the guy who created the PyBolt replacements, for, for instance, he just couldn't figure out what a lot of stuff was doing, right? And then if you look at the list of, of, of issues on Jim, most of them are, are tag Mujico, like more than half. And the reason for this is that, you know, you get uh, bug reports in Mujico environments, many of which are very, very, very serious, mind you. Things like rendering the environment changes reproducibility outcomes. That sounds bad. <laughs> but we can't fix that because no one understands how this stuff works who's involved in the project. And no one who I've reached out to after reaching out to a lot of people has understood how the, uh, enough to really contribute. And so for all these reasons, something kind of had to be done. And this is this is Majoko specific. Like I've, I've actually never used Majoko because I don't have a license, so I use PyBullet. Yeah. But are these yeah. things specific to, to uh, Majoko and not to... Well, the so the problem with the PyBullet replacements is that they didn't replace all the environments and the environments um, emitted certain features because the PyBullet guy couldn't figure out what they were. Ah. Uh -huh. Yeah. I mean, they were functional, of course, but they weren't like profoundly well-maintained to the level of what you would hope in this, and I mean, you use them, you've seen it. So this is the problem with, with the Mujico environments, and okay, well, <laughs> that's a lot of problems. And so then the question comes, okay, so what are you going to do about these problems? And well, the obvious answer is to reach out to the PyBullet um, drop-in environment guy and the PyBullet author and talk to them and stuff. And okay, you know, we could go and recreate the environments of PyBullet, and, or, or more accurately, include the PyBullet, fix the PyBullet environments and include them in Jim. This is a potential outcome that could be taken. However, uh, it was pointed out there's a better option that was to look at Brax. This is something that I hadn't fully understood of until I had gotten into Jim. So have you seen all the stuff with hardware accelerated environments? Because this is the coolest thing ever. This is going to completely change the field. Yeah, I, I got to admit, I, uh, I learned a lot about it since talking to you. And, uh, and I'm definitely... So just for the audience, the issue here is that uh, simulators are slow, and uh, how can we make them fast? Is that what is what we're getting at here? Not quite. So, so the issue is this: 
I am not a hardware person, so I'm not going to try to give like the super in-depth explanation, but the abbreviated explanation to my knowledge is this. When you are training, um, like let's say that you're training an Atari environment on C- um, with the environment running on CPU and the neural network running on GPU, and you end up having these very, very large slowdowns because you have to go send stuff from the GPU to the CPU and back through the PCIe bus. And if you have an environment, even if it's you know less efficient to run on a GPU, but have it run on the GPU and connect to the neural network directly, then you can get usually over more than order of magnitude of uh, performance improvement. So if so, let me get this straight. If if your your sim is entirely running a GPU and yeah. your RL code is entirely running a GPU, then yeah. the whole cycle between them, which is the main clock cycle of RL, yeah. is all running a GPU, and yeah. then your Python and you're you're just not in Python land at all. And yeah. you, so you don't have to worry about the bad performance of Python. Well, the issue isn't, isn't the issue isn't Python. The issue is the PCIe bus. Right. So move it's moving moving bits around. Yeah, yeah. And 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 this back and forth time when when you remove this, even with code that isn't profoundly well done, this code ends up running tens to hundreds of times faster. And so like and so just on like a random GPU, like and so so Brax is a project by Google Brain that provides very well done um these very well done um uh physics it's very old physics simulation that can run on on accelerators so one thing to mention when i say hardware accelerators this isn't just gpus gpus are the most people use but this can run on tpus or other proprietary ml um asics that were shard and seek them out as well this isn't this isn't a gpu only thing but yeah and so so brax runs um it runs more than 100 times faster basically and so you can train in minutes and, and i mean you you understand the implications of Okay, instead of t- something training hours and now trains in minutes, this changes a lot. We're in a different regime then, right? Yeah. In terms, yeah. Of, in terms because of you know, you know, then okay, well, if we're going to experience, okay, cool, hyperparameter sweep, that becomes cheap. Or you know, hey, I did something stupid. Okay, well, this isn't super expensive to go and rerun it. Or you know, I want to train this ten times or a hundred times or a thousand times and create actually academically legitimate research. This this makes that possible, and so one thing that I've been been trying to, to do as much as I can towards is having hardware accelerated environments be the default for all gym environments. Because, like you said, they change everything. And another example that changes, you know, if you're a student and you know you have an old cheap GPU in your laptop and it's it's useless right now. Okay, well, this makes it actually you're actually able to do things. And now the one argument that you will see against GPU accelerated environments is that, of course, developing for them right now with the tools available, it takes a lot more effort. That's one. And the other argument is, well, people are just going to use these very, very large neural networks and it won't matter anymore. And this is the argument that some people who I respect a lot at Anthropic have made. Well, a person, I should clarify. And it wasn't speaking on behalf of the company either. But regardless, for most things that people are doing in research in RL, there's still lots of new blue sky research to be done on simple small environments because you know we can't solve net hack and you can go and and do things and have things be hardware accelerated and i think and if i have anything to do with this is going to be the next big push in rl experimentally and and a lot of environments porting them to to be hardware accelerated run this massive amount faster is a shockingly doable process yeah i want to understand the limits of that because i guess when i when i look at it at the different pieces that are running in the rl loop there's the the let's say the entire simulator was was uh, hardware accelerated. Okay, yeah. that's great. That's what that the, the, then the step the step function um, actually can be really fast. But then as soon as you're 
And then, and then on the on your agent side, you know your your neural network can be in the GPU, so that's great. So your agent, you know, comes out with its with its uh, raw predictions, um, you know, very quickly. But then all the intermediate uh, logic, um, which of which you know custom agents can have tons, is still there's a lot of there's typically there could be a lot of experimentation uh, experimentation at that layer, a lot of different types of logic, a lot of looking up in different buffers or whatever we're doing. To make your agent uh, a special snowflake, that stuff seems like it would be it would be still hard to accelerate and to get to get the entire loop in there. Is that right? Are we looking at at that? At, at, it's not that hard. Is it? Like, okay. You have to factor your code in a certain way, and there will be like some sort of like grand master tutorial guide to this when this comes uh, starts okay. to move into production more. But no, all this requires is factoring your code in a certain way. It doesn't require any profoundly special logic. The one kind of odd thing with this, though, is that um, is that hardware accelerated environments will no longer be returning NumPy tensors. And so you end up having to have, and these wrappers will be built in a gym. There are people working on this. But you'll end up having to have, you know, like wrapping whatever uh, GPU tensor this is outputting to a torch tensor or TensorFlow or whatever. And so that'll be a thing that people will have to handle. The only reason we didn't have to do that before with NumPy was everyone just, all the libraries just kind of supported NumPy implicitly, whereas, you know, we can't pass, say, JAX to, um, to another environment. And the other cool thing, and just to briefly summarize, okay, I have an environment. I want to make it hardware accelerated. How does this work? There are like four ways of doing it. One is to go and... Um, and use things like PyCuda or whatever and use Python bindings to call CUDA and stuff like that. It ends up in, um, putting a lot of overhead and it's hard to do. And, um, the easiest one is you have a NumPy-based environment. You can just uh, write in JAX. And while this, in some cases, ends up being difficult, it, for a lot of things, is just a doable thing. Then if you have C-based environments, you can either modify the C-based environment um, to essentially compile it or CUDA. Or you can, uh, I am told, I've never done this, um, compile it to, to XLA. And then it'll run in the on any hardware accelerator that TensorFlow supports. If, if the NetHack people wanted to make um, NetHack hardware accelerated, I'm just using this because it's an example of a very, very old C environment that's important. Unless there are properties regarding uh, compilation to XLA uh, bytecode that I'm unaware of, this is a thing that they could just do if they wanted to. And, I, and I'm not calling them out specifically. I'm just, again, using them as, as an example of an important environment involving uh, old code. And, and Braxton... And Jax are Google products, right? Is there, there's no dependency on TensorFlow there. We can still do PyTorch just as easily with all. Yeah. With this, yeah. So um, TensorFlow's lowest level of execution relies on uh, what's called XLA. It'll just take and run arbitrary Tensor E code on a TPU or a GPU, or I believe on applicable AMD GPUs as well and probably other stuff in the future. And JAX is Python bindings for XLA intended to replicate NumPy, though it is missing a couple of features in NumPy to have autodiff support. So that's what JAX does. And then Brax is essentially just um, a physics library written using this alternative to NumPy. And so and so just to kind of close this off, what our goal is, is, is to create Fizz3D environments as an alternative to the Mujico environments in there right now, um, because, you know, these ones like are maintained and can be fixed and so on. There'll be a period where people can go and experiment with them and stuff. This will probably start in a third or so at the current rate, something like that. People will be, will be able to go and play with them in gym. People can find whatever issues there are. I'm sure there'll be many. And eventually the Mujico environments will be pulled out. Additionally, the box 2D environments 
are going to be redone in Brax as well. Um, this is because the box of the environments depend on a fork of a fork of an unmaintained bindings for the physics engine that they use. And I can't get the bindings in my hand if I'm trying pretty hard. And also this runs much faster in Brax. And so if you want to do, you know, massive hyperparameter sweeps on those, when they're hard or accelerated, you can do the hyperparameter sweeps in minutes, which is awesome. We'd be in a different regime completely, which is awesome. So I, but I, I do want to understand, um, you're talking about just replacing Majoko with Brax. Do we expect that, like, for example, agents trained on Majoko are going to perform the same in Brax, or do we expect some degree of, like, uh, sim-to-sim differences? There will be sim-to-sim differences inherently. Um, they are by far the most accurate replacements ever made um, for Mijiko, but they are inherently different. And now that the, the Mijiko is acquired, this is this has made the process dramatically easier, of course, because then now the source can be referred to for comparison. But no, there are there are, there are inherent differences, but these will at minimum be dramatically closer to the original Mijiko environments than the PyBullet ones, like people like you use, and those have been more inadequate for everyone. Okay, and then I know there's there's other simulators too. Like I, I spoke to uh, Xiaoming Xia at uh, UBC Robotics Lab, and they use um, PyBullet and also RaySim and Isaac Chim. And so there's so do do you imagine when this this cha- change is made to uh, to move to Brax that that all the other simulators are kind of going to be left behind in terms of performance, or can other sim sims be moved over to Brax too? The underlying uh, their underlying logic be uh, running on. I don't think this. Yeah. I don't think that we are likely to see other environments rewritten in Jax or other simulators. I think that that changing other simulators to run on hardware using whatever C they're written in is certainly a thing that we might see. One really desirable thing about Brax as well, talking to him, is I think that it has it is a, it it is if nothing else tied for the longest likely maintained life from where we are now, which is really good. And so that's another advantage of it. And then out of all the hardware accelerated ones, it's also good. And the other aspect is the Brax team has been willing to go and work with us a tremendous amount on adding these environments and stuff. And the problem with with doing something where the maintainers of the library aren't, you know, super supporting you is that, you know, we have fairly small resources for creating these environments from scratch is actually incredibly difficult. Um, you know, the the PyBullet guy certainly knows what he, when I say the PyBullet guy, I mean the guy who created the PyBullet replacement for, for the Mujico, really, really knows what he's doing. He had a very hard time. So having people who are willing to donate, you know, stupendous amounts of time and relatedly money to this is also helpful. And you mentioned the uh, jumpy wrappers. Can you uh, fill us in on what, what, what is that about? Yeah, so switching environments to become hardware accelerators is going to have this really weird property. Right now, environments are turned NumPy tensors or arrays to neural networks to use. And every in every different um, deep learning library, you just natively interrupt with those. However, you're going to be returning data structures other than NumPy because NumPy doesn't uh. natively run on the GPU. And so you have to have the wrappers written in a way that they, for example, can handle both JAX and NumPy environments. And, and JumpPy is a way of doing this, and we need to do wrapper rewrite anyways. Okay, so we're doing wrapper rewrite and writing them in a new library. So that's with the story of JumpPy wrappers. And these wrappers are going to have to have, you know, like a JAX environment to PyTorch learning code wrapper and it won't cause real performance and you know there are examples of the code that works but this is just an extra thing that you'll have to do that most people aren't used to anything else you want to tell us about the uh, 1.0 roadmap so there's a couple other cool things they're hopefully going to do one thing is that for the entire duration since i've been in charge of gym we have been working on a new fully featured really nice website 
to see what it's going to roughly look like. It's, you can go to PettingZoo.ml, which is the current PettingZoo documentation website. It's going to be based off that. It's going to be very, very comprehensive. Um, so this is something that we're actively working on. Another cool thing that hopefully will happen is that the widely used uh, gym mini grid environment is going to be put into the toy tech environments, hopefully. The um, pending so oh, awesome. This is the current plan that's been publicly discussed. And then the one other thing worth mentioning is we are making some, some minor changes to the render API that you can look up. This is another one where the breaking changes aren't going to re require much work to, to sort out. And just to give people a sense of what's happening with the 1.0 release. In, in general, the, the overarching plan is to make all the breaking changes via flag and stuff while retaining backwards compatibility. Um, add all the new environments to the 1.0 release, all the deprecated environments, all the backwards compatibility stuff will be removed because it will be a 1.0 release. And that'll have a stable set of environments, stable new API, stable set of all new wrappers and GenPy, and all these things. The only thing, big things that we want to deal with after the 1.0 release is looking into the Vector API. A lot of people don't like it for very good reasons, and that's a very important thing to address. But just from the perspective of, you know, I'm one person, we're a small number of people, we're essentially pushing dealing with that one aspect after the 1.0 release when all the stuff with the uh, core API is solidified. Got it. Okay. Sounds like you have a cut, uh, your work cut out for you yeah. <laughs> in 2022. So um, do you want to move on to, to Petting Zoo? This yeah, is, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm super excited about this project. So um, so you have the Petting Zoo environment. I see that you have a paper uh, petting, uh, on, on Petting Zoo on, on Scholar and Archive. Yeah, it was accepted in NURPS. Excellent. Can you tell us about Petting Zoo? Yeah, so this is how I got put in charge of Jim in a nutshell is that I created the most similar thing to it. I created a library that was intended to be Jim for multi-agent RL. Um, many people try to create multi-agent environments with a Jim API, except there's no indication of explicit agents or all these things, and it really sucked. Um, and it's hard to use, and so people had all these, you know, heterogeneous third-party APIs, and then it's like the, the, the dark times of RL before Jim. And, okay, well, I want to go and reproduce this work in this paper. Okay, cool. Now, well, the APIs are different, so now you have to do a lot of software engineering. And whenever you're doing this engineering, you introduce exponential uh, causes for reproducibility errors and all this stuff, and it's not good for anyone. And so the intention of Petting Zoo was to be Jim from Alt-Agent RL. This has arguably been, in some ways, a much harder job than Jim. Um, I mean, Jim was harder than that as a first, but like having a universal multi-agent API is much harder than having a universal single-agent API, is what I mean. We end up going through a lot of different design iterations. There's still a fairly small number of, of, of more minor breaking changes, much more minor than stuff in Jim that are planned for the Petting Zoo API. Um, everyone, if you're listening to this and you're doing anything that you that's like normal with Petting Zoo, that like you should be doing, you'll be fine. So one thing uh, you encounter when you get to multiplayer RL or multiplayer games right away is two different paradigms in terms of some games agents take turns making a move and in some games all agents make their move at once and then yep. it swaps over the environment yep. so and i think you have a, a nice way to handle this in petting zoo how do you how do you handle that so imagine a game where all agents step together at once you, you, uh, this is like rock paper scissors right where everyone acts at once and then imagine a game like chess where one player acts and the other player acts and you go back and forth right well so so there's sort of two ways to handle this problem loosely speaking one way to handle this problem would be to have an API that says, okay, well, you can step for one agent at a time and step for the next agent and so on. And so you just, you know, cycle through everything, right? And you can do that and it's cool. And th this is a generally desirable thing to do. And what happens when you're stepping through each agent 
add every time is that, you know, this can work for chess and this doesn't suck. This isn't weird for rock, paper, scissors where everyone's acting at the same time because you just, you know, the environment just cues them essentially. Whereas if you make your default API the alternative of everyone steps together, okay, well, what happens if you're playing chess, right? You know, you essentially have to use a dummy action for one agent at a time. This gets problematic. And so, th so this is the intuition for why I believe that this sort of step-based API is, uh, is a better default, I would say. There's, of course, still many uses for APIs that focus on the simultaneous case. The other advantage is the API is a default, and this is essentially the argument that the paper makes, is that this mental model of each agent stepping at once. So, for example, if you're in a multi-agent environment... Each agent takes an action, they step. And the way that that, that action step and the way that they go through this and resolve the stuff just on a code level is that they essentially run through a, a loop of all the agents, right? It, it, unless you're doing some wild parallelization stuff, um, there's a for loop of all the agents and each agent updates the environment sequentially on a single core. And But everyone models these as if, you know, they all have step simultaneously. Okay, so, so this sounds like a weird mental model and implementation discrepancy. Okay, so can you find a real-world example of an important, widely used environment that has a bug caused by this discrepancy? Yes, we found a, a couple, and uh, we did, and the paper goes into the bug in the environment. This was a, the open-source implementation of the social sequential dilemma games. Um, the, uh, the bugs were, uh, all the bugs we found were actually recently patched by an undergrad who's been working for me on a, on, on a different project using environments. Essentially, it was a race. But what essentially this causes, though, is a race condition because, you know, you have internal logic depending you – you have, like, you know, resolutions depending on this internal logic. You know, okay, well, if you're thinking about the, the stuff as if it isn't having that, the, just from a from mental model perspective, this is weird to me. That, like, and, and the, the fact of mental model that people use the most for this is, is the pause G model. They build APIs around this and all this stuff. It's sort of partially observable, so you have to games if you want to Google it. And what happens with this model – well, this is in line with, with real world scenarios. Another problem with this model is that it doesn't give you access to information that you should, that you should have. So, for example, if you go through through this through a cycle, if you know how Hanabi works, imagine you know some sort of game where everyone sits in a, a ring of five people and they all take individual turns, right? And so, some fraction of your turn in many games will sorry, some fraction of your award will be attributable to, to different players' turns, right? And this might just from an understanding perspective or if not learning perspective, be something you might be, want you know want to be aware of and want to have access to that information for, right? Well, what happens is that if you take the pause G approach, all rewards just smash together. So there's, so there's no possibility of attribution for like mental modeling and debugging purposes or learning purposes, though this is not widely used for learning. And that also bothers me. And so this is, and so what the Pennings paper does aside from introducing the Pennings library itself is that it, it puts forth this, uh, a formally defined model of AC games as well as a mental model, which is, this idea of, uh, of sequentially stepping games. We showed they're provably equivalent to, to partially observable games. The alternative, let me go through two case studies of how the sort of unintuitive aspects of pause G's um, ca uh, have caused issues in real environments. So pause G's, like you mentioned, is partially observable stochastic games? Yep. It's uh, the most general. It's think of, mult of, uh, think of a multi-agent version of a partially of a partially observable MDP, there's there, there's a bunch of multi-agent models um, that you'll see used. Pause G is the most general and commonly used one cool. outside of EFGs, but that's a kind of different thing. Yeah, um, as a sudden, if people want to Google uh, Pause Gs, I would genuinely genuinely recommend to look at the literature review on this in the Pennings paper. Um, a lot of the 
if, if you try to Google formulas or history of this stuff, what you'll see is bad and the petting zoo paper isn't, it's, it's not some sort of gift from God or anything, but like it's usable and, um, and a lot of the like textbookish sources on this are troubling if anyone's interested. And so this was the idea with the game model. This is what we did. And the reason that we implemented uh, both the Paji style and a games based API in Pennings, if you're wondering, there's one really big problem with the AEC API and that's performance in these games where you, agents can set simultaneously. So imagine, and this is a real case, I'm working on a not yet announced project that involves training thousands of agents in a petting zoo environment. Okay, well, if you're doing that with a um, with the AC game API, this is not good. You know, you have to make a call for each time. You can't ha have neural networks be inferencing in parallel on the GPU. It makes things much slower. And so from that perspective, having this standard Pagi parallel API is important. And so Pettingsu does support both. Um, it doesn't support the parallel API for sequential environments because that would be problematic. And it does treat the AC game API as the default, but it does support both for that reason. Cool. Okay. And then... So I, I personally competed in the NeurIPS 2018 Palmerman uh, multi-agent competition, which uh, was okay. my introduction to a lot of these these multi-agent RL issues. And for example, one thing that I noticed is like sometimes in MARL you want agents to have individual rewards. Um, and then sometimes you want to share the credit for the rewards in, like as a team reward. Or sometimes, sometimes I wanted to like I wanted to balance between those two th things sometimes to make agents more selfish or more team focused, um, and I had to do all this custom stuff to make that work. But does uh, how does how does reward work in in petting zoo, um, and how how would you like I guess the notion of like uh, teams or co competing teams is that like an uh, orthogonal to what petting zoo is doing? Kind of. Um, Pennington doesn't formalize the notion of teams, right? So in multi-agent RL, um, every single agent is trying to maximize his own discounted, uh, future, expected discounted future award, right? Um, whether or not, um, this process is cooperative or competitive or mixed sum depends on the rewards present in the environment. Um, and this is a similar case with, with regards to teams. And so Pennington doesn't formally delineate any of this stuff because this is just a side effect in the environment, so to speak. And petting zoo agents can be named. Um, if you really need to do team management stuff, you can use agent names and, you know, have the first part of the name be, you know, like team blue underscore one, underscore two and so on for different agents. But we don't have a formal notion of support for teams. Uh, as far as reward goes, uh, the pettings.ml page has a really good thorough explanation of this, but the brief version that, yeah, for any agent, for any time step that the reward occurred at, you can go and pull the reward to look at exactly, or you can get the cumulative reward of over the last cycle of agents that acted first. Um, and feed that to learning if you don't want to go and deal with dictionaries of rewards. Okay, and then Petting Zoo uh, is more focused on the MDP um, paradigm more than the planning paradigm. Is that right? Yeah. So Petting Zoo is focused on this classical state action pair stuff in RL. The most different thing from Petting Zoo that's widely used is open spiel. They have things like uh, classical backtracking. The issue with, with backtracking that you commonly use for classical algorithms and games is that this can't be generally supported for a lot of different environments. It's messy to do from computational and API and environment design perspective. Um, because all petting zoo environments support pickling, or well, I suppose not, maybe not all third-party ones do, but all first-party ones do, um, you still can do the backtracking, but it's less computationally efficient than having native support than open spiel. And we did this because it's not a commonly used feature for currently popular uh, deep RL stuff, um, for stuff outside of 
specific class of games like open spiel targets. So it's a specialty feature for a more specific thing. Yeah, one other cool thing to mention with Petting Zoo is just getting to see the adoption cycle of it because when Petting Zoo was released, I had almost no professional credibility. I was very new to the field. I transferred from physics, didn't really know anyone. And I ended up talking about a dozen different grad students, undergrads into working on it for six to 12 months. And it's and it's just been really, really cool to see how Petting Zoo has grown from this almost obscure library to this thing that like all the different major multi-agent RL libraries use um, and all the ones that don't use it are currently actively working on supporting Cypher OpenSpiel, which is doing something different than what we're trying to. And so that's just been a really cool thing to like just to see how, how this has grown to see you know, there's like a brand new library that I created not that long ago. And there's something like 30 plus different third-party environments for Petting Zoo now. I think more than that, there's a list of them on the documentation website. And, you know, to see this just like this huge wave of integration or like if people don't know what the RL Discord is, it's what it sounds like. It's really cool. Cool. You should Google it and check it out. I'm in there a lot. A lot of the open source RL people are. And like the multi-agent RL channel on that is essentially just like petting. It's, it's like Stack Overflow for petting zoo now a lot of the time, which is really, really perf- wild to see just from a personal level that people are using your stuff this much. Sweet. Okay. Okay. I look forward to checking that out more. Uh, and it's been on my list for a while, but now it's, uh, it's moved up uh, near the top now. Thanks. Uh, Thanks for for giving the community petting zoo. I think uh, this is, we're just I'm I'm sure it's just the beginning of a the epic story of where petting zoo is going to go. Hopefully. So let's move on to Supersuit. Do you want to tell us about Supersuit? Yeah. So Supersuit's in the process of being killed. Um. So the story of Supersuit is that um, petting zoo needed um you know wrappers right um and Jim's built-in wrappers weren't very good and they still aren't literally almost literally full rewrite of them. And this is partially motivated by jumping other factors, but you know, okay, well, if we're gonna do petting zoo wrappers that are like comprehensive and good and stuff, why not do gym wrappers and put it in its own package on Super Zoo and have it be a wrappers pack? A couple things that petting zoo did that were maybe a tiny bit innovative, like they weren't profound or anything. One is that we were the first to add versioning for wrappers the way the way that environments are versioned in gym and petting zoo. I think that's important because you know wrappers impact reproducibility just as much as environment aspects do. And then the other aspect uh, is to have a bunch of you know wrappers that can be you know a bunch of wrappers that do small things that people can just grab from you know if you you know if you're using Mujico, most people have to write their own little code snippet to turn the the float 64 data type stuff that's returned into float 32 into float 32 to be able to pass it to neural network code or float 16 depending what was cool about super suit is that you know it just had a bunch of these wrappers you can go and grab from for a variety of reasons uh in part because of jump high and all these other things um super suits being killed and broken up into gym dot wrappers and the new version of that and the pending stuff will be moved into petting zoo dot wrappers okay and then you said you wanted to speak about uh, scientifically legitimate experiments in RL. There's this r- common problem in RL where, where you know, you'll go and you'll read a paper in RL and you'll be able to tell very quickly that, like, reading this paper isn't a good use of time and, like, okay, why does anyone care? Like, this is – multiple things went wrong here. And just to p- – without picking on any specific papers, one example of where a lot of things – where something very seriously wrong is if you try to make claims about methods and stuff like this without doing hyperparameter searches or with only training once or without using the comparison methods described by like Mark Belmer and R Liable or RL Liable, I don't know how I pronounce it, other similar works. And, and, and we see papers like this really, really often. They get accepted to, you know, high profile venues by, in many cases, people who aren't profoundly 
experience in RLs or viewers, I would hypothesize, but I can't confirm this personally. This is just something that really, really bothers me that I think that a lot of attention needs to be put, needs to be placed on. And, you know, it's one thing if people want to go and put out work because the problem is that, you know, if you want to claim that, you, that your method has its performance and so on, unless you do things like hyperparameter searches, testing on a diverse set of environments, doing accurate, accurate statistically significant comparisons, then you can't actually say that you've done anything. Like, like you've done all this work and you've contributed no new knowledge to the space. And like, you know, you have about 10,000 working days in the average person's life, and this is what you're spending part of it on. And I don't, I mean, I mean, there's obviously the motivation of publish or perish, sure, but like there are ways to do this where you're making actually scientifically valid claims about your about your work and can contribute can contribute actual knowledge. And this is something that's not widely done. I hope that making experiments cheaper to run with hardware acceleration will improve this, but this is more than anything requires systemic change in terms of um of the culture and review process and so on for papers. And but and but then the process beyond you any contributions to the field or detriments to the field or anything like this is that you know the people the who are working on this, you know, who are spending these large amounts of time creating these papers and getting them into peer-reviewed venues, and then don't go through the process of, of all this additional work to be able to make scientific claims out their works that can actually be such that they can actually like contribute like uh, knowledge that is correct and again at least can you that you can show is correct. Like you're spending a fraction of your life doing this, and it's a very finite thing. And it and it just I, I can't wrap my head around. Around this, and I think this is something that really needs to be addressed. I think that uh, two people have done a really, really good job in this space are Mark Belmare and Phil Thomas, in terms of you know scientifically legitimate reinforcement learning claims. But in a lot of cases, in a lot of profile, high profile publications, this this has been shown in the literature, even peer reviewed literature. Not that that means that much in this field for the claims about the superiority of uh, methods to be false. And everyone wants to, to wants to go and this is a weird thing that I end up. Because I, I, for some reason, I get approached by a ton of grad students wanting to do things with me. They all want to go and do method papers. They want to create the new PPO or the new thing like this. And the problem with that is, I mean, this has been done literally hundreds of times. And none of them have had the experimental support to be widely used in their claims. Maybe the one exception to this that's, that's seen a little bit of, of, of meaningful uses uh, beyond the like ones in stable baseline series, Diane and PPG. You'll see use from time to time, but beyond those, you know, there's been no progress in this fairly important thing because primarily due to, due to the issue of credible benchmarking. Um, and so this is my man yells at clouds monologue about that. So this this sounds related to, uh, you know, Rashab Agarwal was first author on a paper that won outstanding paper at NeurIPS 2021. That's deep reinforcement learning at the edge of the statistical precipice. Um, this is the one where he's saying that this to basically statistical methods used in RL comparisons are, are pretty bad and we okay. should do a better job of yeah, uh, yeah, okay. bench, benchmarking yeah. using yeah. basically commonly understood statistics. Um, and, and I mean, one of the things here was that uh, just like the sample size is so small, you know, showing how, um, how can we draw conclusions with, you know, maybe one or a handful of runs. Um, so it, it sounds related. It's not the entire issue, but it sounds related. To, it's to the same ethos, yeah. And and you mentioned Mark uh, Belmer. He's also a co-author on that co-author on that paper. Yeah. One other thing that's related to this, if anyone's interested in some sort of topic, um, for research, you can if you want to do this, you can email me. And I'll tell you tell you everything that I know because this really needs to be done. Is that there are a large amount of implementation specific tricks that impact how black box 
optimizers are used for automated hyperparameter tuning for RL. And I say this as someone who I've written, at least as far as I can publicly tell, I think I've written some of the largest amount of automated hyperparameter tuning code for DeepRL in the world for a project that I'm trying to work on, where the entire thing is like mass scale hyperparameter tuning with hundreds of GPUs. And, and this hasn't been studied. And, and coming back to, you know, if you want to make a claim of how good your method is, then you kind of have to do hyperparameter tuning in an automated manner. And if, and if that's the case, well, presumably there should be a whole literature on the impact of all the generally well understood implementation tricks that correspond to hooking these two things together. And there is not. I think that 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 readily available hardware accelerated environments and stuff like Jim, like we hope to do, would make doing academic scale research on this easier. But I think that if anyone's interested for research, I think this is a foundationally important thing that as far as you no know, literally no one in the world is um is working on. And if anyone wants to, you know, have me tell them everything I know about that, just email me. Okay, that's a generous offer. I want to follow up on one aspect of that right now. So I I was looking at, I, I'm trying to remember which one it was, but either you used Hyperopt or Optuna. And I was like, I'm going to get to know some hyper uh, hyperparameter tuning. And so what I did is I hooked it up to a dummy problem where the result was just a random number, like some kind of, some noisy random number. And I said, okay, hi, uh, uh, hyper parameter tuning, try to optimize this. And it, it, uh, what I found is it had no awareness that its hyperparameters had no impact on the result. Yep. And and so it, it gave me some answer. It said, "Oh, I found this point that had the best result," but there was there was no point at which it said, "You know what? I'm going to stop turning turning that particular knob because it has no impact." And so so I so that felt very dumb to me. Yeah, I, I have not used Hyperopt. I've used Optuna exclusively. This isn't any religious thing. It's just Optuna has a bunch of built-in thing. Other people have built a bunch of things for Optuna specifically that I use. And, and yeah, so if you specifically use um, pruning, if you use pruning with Optuna, it'll get around this problem. There's different settings for that. But, but just to sort of illustrate the scale of the problem here, let me give one example of like why this is such like a A, important, and B, incredibly low-hanging research problem. When, you ha when you're training a reinforcement learning environment, what you do is that you go is that you go and take at some point of the like uh, series of reward values and return that one value to the black box optimizer because black box optimizers can only take one value for good reason. Okay, which value of, of that curve do you return? Now you may say, oh, this is easy. You take the best one, right? Well, the problem with taking the best one is that then your your um is that then your hyperparameter optimizer will go will go and find these really, really unstable hyperparameters or well, hyperparameters that, that incentivize really, really unstable learning. And so then your, your, so then your learning curves will essentially be like flat, flat, flat. And just for a single step, it'll like peak up incredibly high to like fully learn and instantly drop back down. And this is what all your learning curves look like. And it's super weird. So, okay, maybe don't report that value. Okay, well, you can report the end value and that kind of works, right? Well, sure. But like, do you want to take like a weighted average over the last end values or, you know, all these things or another related problem is, okay, well, you know, I want to find the best value, but it's also useful if, um, if, if I find the best value and I want to try to, you know, somehow incentivize um, finding more sample efficient hyperparameters as well. Okay, how do you do this? Beyond, um, you can, you know, just arbitrarily constrain it, but what if you want to add some sort of additional penalty towards a turn to the, hyper, to the black box hyperparameter for either wall clock time run or, or resources used or stuff like this? How do you integrate that in a way that doesn't screw everything up? Or variance, right? Like yeah, if you want, or if variance. You just want stability. 
Um, well, and and the problem with variants this that um, is that you have to run them a bunch, which is even more challenging. But yeah, th- like this is what I mean by like, okay, what part of the, of the reward curve do I return to Black Ox Optimizer? This is not a formally studied problem, as best as I can tell. And like, like this is this will clearly be, clearly be foundational work. And then lots of things like this would be that I I can get into later if people care. And and aside from just being generally foundational work, this is easy foundational work that has zero competition, which sounds appealing. No, that sounds uh, that sounds like important stuff. I I yeah, I'm not aware of what other people did in that space, but uh, I definitely have faced some of those. Uh, issues in the past. Yeah. What, how do I plug in my, my curve, my training curve into, into Hyperopt or Optuna or anything like that? You mentioned that you, uh, gave up on reading RL papers under normal circumstances a long time ago. Uh, and you talked about this, uh, this article that we saw, you know, earlier this year, please commit more blatant academic fraud. That article was was incredible. You want to tell us about the, your response to that article? Because that was that was uh, that's the kind of uh, perspective you don't hear very often. People are generally generally not that honest. Um, <laughs> or frank, I would say. Yeah. Uh, so the reason that I like the article so much is that there is a specific benchmark in multi-agent RL, and and me saying this, anyone will instantly know what I'm referring to is in the space. I don't want to call people out because professional issues, but. Um, but like, like there's essentially one one benchmark in the space multi-agent RL where the entire space on this, the entire literature on this, falls into this sort of please commit more 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 blatant academic fraud. And it's gotten to the point now where where there, um, which is wild by academic standards, where there's where there's actual allegations of genuine academic fraud because of how badly the scientific claims that the papers in the space have been made by like the first person outside of the core people in it to like go and like. Let's read things and think for a while before writing a paper first. It was is all he did, and he managed to like to solve the environment set. And it was it in, in you know in this little subspace of multi agent Ireland being this fairly impactful thing, at least to me. And just the fact that this can happen is is it's a detriment to all of us and a shame to the field. And you know everyone's oh reproducibility is broken and this and that bad thing and R and RL and I mean it's just like you should at least try. Like, 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 you know, people make, make it like in biology and stuff, if there are wild mistakes made very constantly in such a life. And, you know, turn, you know, and people regularly find out like that an entire subfield is using invalid statistics and stuff. And this kind of happens, I guess, but like they're at least trying to do the right thing. Like effort is put into doing things the right way. And I feel like that's somehow different than where we're at. And, and this is why I stopped reading papers, because like, you know, how many papers a year are published that you care about that you even remember like 10 okay so so what's the point of going and reading through through the deluge of new papers right and for whatever it's worth this isn't even unique to me i'm not gonna name people but like there are other professors who like are very famous who i think some of them have been on here take the same approach of yeah i don't really know except for some very edge case stuff most of the stuff isn't really worth the time to read and like and like if and if people are spending the just large amounts of their life turning up paper after paper after paper and this is the the consensus that people have these papers like this is what you're spending like a portion of your life doing and this is something that really really fundamentally bothered me like like just almost like for the people doing it for the community for everyone and so i get that that, that like the entire last however long of this uh my interview has been like old man yells at cloud style but like <laughs> the emperor has no clothes let's get some clothes for this uh, emperor please people so is there, is there anything else I should have asked you um, today, Jordan? 
I don't think so. Uh, I guess to answer the sort of thing at the end, what do I see my lines of research um, over the next coming years, and what is the holy grail of your line of research? One thing, I would really like to wrap up what I hopefully will be some moderately highly publicized works in the next three to six months and to get those out so I can move on with my life, get Gem 1.0 and all that stuff out so I can again deal with other things. Um, one problem that I'd really like to try to solve personally is trying to beat PPO across a, uh, a well-chosen, diverse set of environments with, an, with experiments done in such a way that real scientific claims could be made about beating PPO meaningfully for the first time. That's something I, I think would be a really cool problem to work on personally. Uh, and then regarding that, what is the Holy Grail? I mean, in this in in the space of RL, there's obviously you know, if not general intelligence, there's you know, like GPT three kind of general generality and intelligence for RL. That'd be really cool. If you want to talk to someone about that, ask uh, Joseph Suarez at MIT. Uh, but for me personally, I think that I, I think the Holy Grail is to have a sort of like unified set of best practices regarding all the different RL environments. And like what uh, for for experimental validity and making real scientific claims and all these things that can be sort of standardized across all little sub disciplines of RL so that we can at least make better progress. I, I think what this would solve coming back to the emperor has no clothes problem is that like, you know, many of the people who, who are trying to solve these problems are better or worse don't have the most personal incentive for whatever the reason is to try to make profound contribution to science. They're trying to get out as many papers as possible. And they aren't, you know, trying all these things. And if you can at least create like some sort of genuine standard for reproducibility in RL, then you can at least say that like, well, okay, you didn't meet the agreed upon criteria that's been published for the thing that you're working on for this, go fix it. And then at least, you know, this will at least make a lot of the papers that would otherwise be completely worthless and, and offer almost no new real knowledge about anything empirically, offer some, even if the authors aren't. Even even if this this isn't what the authors have their hearts bent on, you know. I mean, there's some tension there. I think like some people cynically say, you know, large organizations are would be pro regulations that are that built that that create barriers to entry because they already I mean, they can I already think pass those. So strong you, barriers of entry. Yeah. Well, yes, but I mean, the, the but, argument would be if if you know if we if we insisted on let's say we insisted on. 50 runs of your algorithm, that now limits it only to the biggest labs that can actually do that for significantly complex agents and environments. So here's the problem that I have with that, though, right? Well, I am entirely appreciative of all the constraints that, that come along with doing that. I think that hardware acceleration will help where it's applicable. There are, many, there are many cases where it's not or where people aren't able to do it. But like in these cases, okay, so let's say that, oh, well, I couldn't do 50 runs or I couldn't do automated hyperparameter shooting. Okay, it's fine that you couldn't, but like... Because you couldn't do this, even if it, even if you couldn't do this without direct fault of your own, it still per, uh, essentially precludes you from from contributing scientific knowledge, or at least the vast majority of it, in the work that you're publishing. Like like if you can't do that, you are already excluded from 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 at least contributing to certain areas of reinforcement. There's of course many areas of reinforcement that you can contribute to without these level of resources. But yes, it, you know you you would be recluded from other things. You already are, right? It's just that people pretend that you aren't. It's just obscured. And so maybe it would clarify what areas of research it's appropriate for certain size labs to focus on so that yes. they can actually produce scientifically valid results. But then your work on making this stuff more scalable can change the equation. And, and I hope that so. presumably is better for the field. So uh, I very much hope so. Uh, we'll see how things are going in a year.
Awesome. Well, uh, Jordan, Terry, this has been fantastic. I really enjoyed this conversation and I'm really enjoying learning about all the incredible work you're doing and your contributions to the community are, are just outstanding. And uh, thanks so much for, for sharing all this with, uh, with TalkRL today. Thank you so much for having me. Um, and, and it was really nice uh, to be here.